If you haven't gotten the new handout, you should have a, a set of notes now that ends on page 56. Does that sound right? So the new, the new notes end on 56. Is it 57? I'm sorry, yeah, 57. That's one short, 57. Thank you. And, but I believe we left off on page 46. So we're going to, we're going to pick up about halfway down page 46.2. We'll do a little bit of review just to remind ourselves of where we were in chapter 8. And then we'll move along a little bit further. And I think the plan again is to, to break at 840. I mean, 640. 840 would be bad, right? The plan is to break at 640. So I'll keep an eye on the clock. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful that you spoke to us. I'm thankful for your son. I'm thankful for the life-giving spirit who has set us free from the power of sin and death. I'm thankful that in your son you have condemned sin and that by putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we have the promise that we will live. Uh, Father, I pray that your son would be honored tonight by the way we study your word. I pray that you'd help me to think clearly and speak accurately. I pray that together as we study as brothers and sisters, that you would continue to make us more like Christ. And we ask for this in his name. Amen. All right, so we're here in chapter 8 of Romans. We put up this slide last time just to kind of give us the big overview of the first section. He's, he's wrapping up, Paul is, the section that he started in chapter 5, what we call chapter 5, where he went through three potential roadblocks or obstacles on the path to glorification, death, sin, and the law. He's wrapping it all up, and so all three of those things, death, sin, and law, will be repeated again, just like any good writer, when they're wrapping up their conclusion, they go back and repeat some of the main points that they've made along the way. He's tying this all together with the phrase, hope of glory, that you and I have the hope of someday being in God's presence and bringing Him glory the way that we were originally created to, and also sharing in Christ's glory, in the, in the reign that He'll have forever. And we can be absolutely sure that that's going to take place, first of all, because the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit that He refers to there, has given us life. He's, he's cause, causing us now to live lives that please God and will one day also resurrect our bodies. So, just to zoom in on that first paragraph to remind us of what we talked about. In verses 1 through 4, I'm just kind of paraphrasing and summarizing what he says, but he starts out with a therefore. So based on everything that he's been saying in chapters 5 through 7, and I think he's specifically thinking of that parallel that he made between Adam and Jesus, that we have this life-giving union with Christ. So because of all that, we will not be condemned for our sins. Uh, we, we do not have to walk away from reading Scripture, walk away tonight feeling condemned for our sins. We, we, have, we have peace with God. We have forgiveness. 
Uh, and the way he explains that is that the greater power of the life-giving spirit, remember he's using law there, sometimes in the sense of like the law of gravity. So it's a principle or it's a power that we had over our life. It led to death. But now there's been a greater power, the power of the Holy Spirit, that set us free from that power of sin and death. The, the Mosaic Law was never going to be able to do that. It was powerless to accomplish this freedom, not because there was anything wrong with it, but because there was something wrong with us. We were sinners. So we were, it says there, we were weakened in, our, in the flesh. The law was. But what it was unable to accomplish, Paul says, God accomplished it. So God did it. We couldn't rescue ourselves. The law wasn't going to be able to rescue us, but God did it. God did, accomplished it. And how did he do it? Paul said he did it by means of sending his own son. He came in the likeness of human flesh. Remember we talked about that? Paul's walking a careful line. He wants to say that Jesus was completely human. He was one of us, except for one big difference, right? He was without sin. So because he was one of us, but he wasn't a sinner, God was able to send him as a sin offering. And there at the end of verse 3 of chapter 8, he says, And so he condemned sin in the flesh. That's just a very short, concise way of saying that God put forward a man, a human, someone in flesh, and all of the condemnation that we deserved because of our sin was placed on Jesus. In the human realm, on a man, the condemnation of sin was placed. He condemned sin in the flesh. Well, why did he do this? Well, what was the purpose of our justification? Why, why forgive us of our sins and credit us with Christ's righteousness? It was that so someday Christ could have a kingdom of people who are no longer sinners. So it was also to start this process that we now call our, our sanctification, of actually eradicating sin from our life. It's so that, Paul says, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And just to get us thinking about what that righteous requirement might be, let's, let's go a bit, a bit ahead. So let's go in our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, I put it there in red on the slide. We'll look at verses 8 and 10. So that's been one of the puzzles when you're reading Paul. What does he mean by the righteous requirement? I think there's two ways to explain that. One, he could just be talking about the law as a unit, as a package. But I think it's more likely, because of things he says in other places, that he's following Jesus' teaching that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with our whole being, and the second commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself. So this is what Paul says in verse 8 there, chapter 13. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. See how that's very similar language? And then go down to verse 10. He says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If, you, if you're perfectly loving your fellow man, remember how Jesus defined neighbor with the Good Samaritan story? It's everyone, even people that we might think of as our enemies. 
If you're perfectly loving them, then everything else falls into place, right? Or if we broadened out the scope, if we love our God with our whole being and we love all of his creatures, all of his image bearers, then we have fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. But that was something that you and I were never going to be able to do on our own. God had to make the first move in order to rescue us from the power that sin and death had over us. It wasn't just enough to keep giving us law. So I'll just go back to this this quote here from Luther. He's talking here about uh, Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. He says, It is as with a sick man who wants to drink some wine because he foolishly thinks that his health will return if he does so. Now, if the doctor, without any criticism of the wine, should say to him, it is impossible for the wine to cure you, it will only make you sicker. The doctor is not condemning the wine, but only the foolish trust of the sick man in it. For he needs other medicine to get well, so that he can then drink his wine. Thus also our corrupt nature needs another kind of medicine than the law by which it can arrive at good health, so that it can fulfill the law. It's the order that really matters, right? We can't just keep giving people more laws to follow and expecting that to be the cure. As Luther says, they need another medicine. They need the work of the Spirit. And once they've had their medicine, so to speak, then those same laws that we were giving to them that were just making them sicker, Now we can give them to them and they're actually able to fulfill them because they've had a a change of heart. That's, I think, what Paul is pointing to in that first paragraph. Well, then, what about the second paragraph? The second paragraph says, We've been rescued by God in order to start pleasing Him. People living in the normal human realm are hostile toward God and unable to keep God's laws. However, people who live in the new realm of the Spirit agree with the desires of the Spirit. And then in verses 9 through 13, if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we're not in the normal human realm, but this new realm of the Spirit. So he contrasts these two realms, a realm that he keeps calling the flesh, which is the normal human realm that we were all born into naturally, with this new realm of the Spirit. Well, how do you know that you're in one or the other? Well, Paul says you know because the Spirit himself is in you. So we're not just in a realm where the Spirit rules, but we actually have the Spirit presently indwelling us. He's actually changing us. He's actually affecting the way we view the world. Our whole mindset, our worldview has changed, along with the value system that we place on objects, the loves that we have towards things. He says, if the Spirit, of, and he also will say, if it's Christ who's living in you, the Father will give you resurrection life even though you will still physically die because of sin. Therefore, we must not serve the desires of our fallen human nature, the flesh, which lead to death, but the desires of the Spirit, which lead to life. That's where we left off in verse 13. He wraps this all up in verse 13 with, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So often this is referred to when people are studying Paul's letters as first he gives you the indicative and then he gives you the imperative. 
Or another way to refer to that same concept is first he refers to God's gift, and then he refers to your responsibility. We're, we're pretty familiar with this, for example, like in a book like Ephesians, where it almost seems like it's split down the middle. Half of the book talks about the indicative, the gift, what God has already done for us, and then it moves to the imperative, the responsibility. So it's based on this work of the Spirit that you and I now have a responsibility. If we should go back to our old master and serve him, Paul keeps reminding us, just remember how he closed chapter 6 and verse 23? The wages of sin are death. That's, that's a dead-end path. Instead, we now, because we've been set free, we should serve the Spirit. And if you serve the Spirit, that obligation, it will lead to life. All right, that's a little bit of a review. I felt like I kind of rushed through that last little bit, and I was a little muddled myself after I left. So I just wanted to clarify that a little bit. Any quick questions over, over those opening paragraphs? It's a great truth, isn't it? Yeah. All right, well then let's, let's go back to our big overview, and we'll move into that second section, verses 14 through 17. So a second reason why you and I can be assured of our glorification is because the spirit that Paul just referred to, who lives inside of us, he actually testifies to us. He causes us to know that we are God's children. Let me just read that for us. So this is verses 14 through 17. It says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if you are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory." So verse 13 left off with a pretty kind of a stark contrast, right? We, we have two choices to make. Paul says you do have an obligation. You can't remain neutral. You either have to serve the Spirit and His desires or you have to serve the flesh. But then he says in verse 14, if you're led by the Spirit of God, you are the children of God. So I, I'm saying there in that first bullet point under verse 14 that Paul's careful use of this word led likely indicates that the Spirit is not, on the one hand, forcing believers to do things contrary to their will. But on the other hand, the Spirit is the one that is ultimately responsible for the believer's obedience. So he's not, he's not pushing us, he's not shoving us, he's not making us do something against our will. But at the same time, it's not actually ultimately up to us, right? When you and I finally reach that hope of glory, that new kingdom that's coming, we ultimately aren't going to be able to take credit for all of this fruit of the Spirit in our life. That's why Paul in Galatians calls it the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's ultimately the Spirit who produces it. So I go on to say, when we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we're not doing something in which we can boast. Furthermore, the Spirit assures us that we are God's children by causing us not to be afraid of God's judgment 
and prompting us to cry out to him as our father. So I think that's what he refers to in verses 15 through 16. One of the means by which God assures us that we're actually his child is he produces in us a desire to come to him in prayer. That when we, we, when we, are, we have guilty consciences, when we're afraid, when we're worried about loved ones who are going through difficult situations, there's an instinctive thing inside of us that says we need to go to our Father. We cry out to our Father. Well, where does that come from? It came from the Spirit. And it's the Spirit's way of actually confirming that we are God's child. He refers to it here as the, the spirit of adoption. That's how the NASB put it. That'd be kind of a very literal word-for-word uh, translation. But it's a reference to the Holy Spirit who gives us the new birth and brings us into God's family. So I think the NIV, they, they kind of expand that, but they clarify it. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. He's not a spirit of bondage which causes us to continue fearing God's judgment. So, Paul says, if we are God's children, and the presence of the Spirit says that we are, then that means we're also heirs of God. He's the king. So if we're his children, then we're going to share in all of the promises that were originally made to the Messiah, to the Christ. This is one of the passages where Paul says a little bit more about this. So, This is in Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. You remember this passage? It's very helpful sometimes to read uh, Romans and Galatians side by side because they have a lot of the same subject matter. And so sometimes Paul will flesh out something in one area that he doesn't in the other. There he's talking about the promise that was made to Abraham and how it wasn't dependent on his own works, his own effort, but it it was of grace. And he quotes a little bit of Genesis 22:18, And Paul says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So you've got to find the specific place in Genesis that he seems to be referring to because you know, he doesn't put references for us or footnotes like we'd like. He just expects you to search through your scroll and find it. But it seems to be from Genesis 22:18, where a promise was made to a specific seed, a specific descendant of Abraham. And we now know that that was Jesus. He's the one who is going to receive this, these promises. He goes on to say, For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. And then he wraps it all up a couple lines later. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That just fits in so nicely with all of this emphasis that we've seen in Romans chapter 8 about our connection to Christ. All these times he said we received benefits through Christ or in Christ. Christ took what we deserved, and we're receiving what Christ has earned, what he's worthy of. And part of that is heirs to a new world, a new kingdom. So we will receive this inheritance, turning the page, if we suffer alongside Christ. So he does, he does put a condition on this. So look at verse 17 again. He says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ 
if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Remember, that's the same pattern that Jesus also followed in his life. Remember, it was sufferings first, and then it was glory to follow. Uh, one way to think about this is the pattern in Philippians chapter 2, right? When, when Paul's talking to us as people in the church, and he's encouraging us to think unified and look out for your fellow church member, he says we need to have the same mindset that Jesus Christ had because he was willing to humble himself by becoming a man. He lowered himself all the way to the point of the cross. But then what was on the other side? He's now been highly exalted. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord, right? So the pattern in Jesus's life was first suffering and then glory. If we want to be connected to Jesus, and I hope we do, right? If we want to be united to him, and receive what he has earned for us, then we should also be willing to be united with him in his sufferings. That's a pretty common theme in Paul's writings that he will refer to. This is just one place. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. This almost looks like maybe he's quoting a little bit of a song or a little bit of a piece of poetry, either something he wrote himself or maybe something that the early Christians had created but it has a definite pattern to it. And Paul will say here, here is a trustworthy saying. So he's saying, listen up, pay attention. This is really important. If we died with him, we will also live with him. As, as Paul already told us in Romans that we died with Christ, he absolutely has, right? Romans chapter 6, we were crucified with Christ. We died with Christ, so that means we will also live with him. But then he says, if we endure we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. It's that, it's that middle one that I think is the focus here in Romans chapter 8. If we endure, if we're willing to share in his sufferings, then we will also reign with him. So um, John Murray in his commentary has got a good quote here at the top of that page. There is no sharing in Christ's glory unless there is sharing in his sufferings. Sufferings and then glory was the order appointed for Christ himself. So that finishes up that section. And then verses 18 through 25 give us a third reason why we can have confidence in our glorification. So the Spirit demonstrates his presence in our lives by causing us to long for glorification in the midst of suffering. The key word in this passage is groaning. So first he's going to talk about creation groaning, and then he's going to wrap it all up at the end with the Spirit actually groaning. So let's see what he has to say here. So picking up in verse 18, verse 18, that first bullet point, Paul begins this new paragraph by elaborating upon the sufferings described in verse 17, so there's a, little, there's a little four that shows up in some of our English versions. It makes it very clear that Paul's he's explaining or elaborating what he means by these sufferings. Okay, So maybe you're in Rome, you're reading this letter, and you might be the unusual Christian that's not facing difficulty. And so Paul's reminding you, you know, that you actually do live in a world of suffering, which if we're being honest, most of the time we're all too aware of, right? These sufferings that he refers to in verse 18 
are not limited to persecution as a Christian, but include all forms of suffering that we endure in a sin-cursed world. So I, I heard a great sermon about this just this morning, so it's fresh in my mind. But uh, you remember that Paul says that everyone who wants to live righteous lives uh, for Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, right? It's an, it's an absolute statement. No one's excluded. And sometimes the problem is that we, we just equate persecution with the ultimate expression of that, you know, martyrdom or a loss of freedom. But persecution does come on a spectrum, right? Uh, we, we, we're not sure exactly how we would face martyrdom, because for most of us that hasn't occurred. But if we're being honest, we are more likely to give in just to ridicule or to be looked down upon, to being sneered, right? To being viewed as the strange person. We can succumb to that type of persecution also. So there's a whole variety, a whole spectrum of persecution and suffering in this world that we should expect because we as followers of Jesus should not expect to be treated any better than our Lord was. It would be enough for us to be treated the same as our master, right? So it's in this type of suffering I think he's referring to. I don't think we have to think that the church in Rome is under some kind of organized persecution at this point. That's going to come years later. They're facing more of the same kind of persecution that you and I face. Just a culture that thinks we're weird, all right? A culture that thinks we don't fit in. A culture that likes to make fun of us, okay? It's interesting, though, that Paul, he doesn't minimize the suffering. He doesn't try to tell these Christians, hey, this suffering, it's not really that big of a deal. It's small. What's he do instead of minimize the suffering? He, he maximizes the glory, right? The suffering can be great, and he in no way diminishes it. But what he does is he puts the glory that's in store for us on the scales next door. And the glory is overwhelming, right? He says that the suffering is not worth being compared to the glory that will come after. So this is, let me just read a little bit of that paragraph. So I'll start in verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we have not yet have, what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. All right, so in verses 19 through 22, Paul has to stop and explain briefly what he means by revealed in verse 18. So he says there's a glory that's waiting to be revealed. And he explains this by saying, well, we're still basically waiting for the curses effects to be removed, which means that our final state is not yet seen. So 
our destiny and the destiny of this, this planet, the rest of the creation, are tied together. When the curse is removed for one of them, the, the curse is going to be removed for both of them. So to describe this expectation that we have for that day, Paul personifies creation as one that groans and suffers while it waits for the children of God to be revealed. Because on that day, it will also have the curse placed on it removed. So creation doesn't really groan and suffer. Creation is an inanimate object. It's, it's not a person. It doesn't have feelings. Paul doesn't believe in like a concept like Mother Nature. He's just using personification. He's, he's thinking about the natural disasters, the pain and hard work that we have to put into toil after Adam's curse. All of those uh, effects of the curse that were mentioned back in the early chapters of Genesis, creation is waiting for those to be, to be removed. And it's pretty clear here, I think, that this one who subjected it is God. All right? So the one who subjected this world to its suffering is also the one that can remove it. We should be glad of that, right? If God was dependent on somebody else, then it might be up in the air whether or not he could actually do this. But if he's the one who placed the curse on the world to begin with, he's also the one that can remove it someday. In a very similar way then to creation, Paul goes on to say, believers are eagerly looking forward to the day when their final state will be revealed. That's what I think what he means there in verse 23. As we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. So we have the Spirit as the first fruits. It's a pretty common um, expression in the Old Testament. You know, it was the first piece of their harvest, and it was a down payment on a bigger harvest that was coming. So it's like the first installment. It's the promise that a bigger, uh, a bigger reward is coming. And Paul will frequently refer to the Spirit as that first fruits. But we're still waiting for all of the benefits of being adopted into God's family to be revealed. In fact, having the Spirit as the first fruits causes us to groan because we're even more eager to see His work completed. So as Moo puts it in his commentary, the very fact that the Spirit is only the first fruits makes us sadly conscious that we have not yet severed all ties to the old age of sin and death. So we have to think carefully what Paul's saying there. It could be, I mean... Your first glance, you might just think, well, that's, that's a normal experience, right? If I taste something small when I'm hungry, I want more, right? So when they give you those appetizers at the restaurant, the whole point is that so that you'll want more food, right? So a little taste of something can make you want more. But I think Paul's actually saying more than that. He's actually saying that before you were a believer, right, you really weren't that concerned about the curse, you weren't really groaning inwardly and seeking righteousness, right? As, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you weren't hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Yes, you did have a conscience. Yes, you did know that you fall short. But you didn't have the same deep desire to be right the way that you have now. So it's actually the presence of the Spirit that causes us to hunger more for our final redemption. Because as Christians, we now don't become sinless. We actually become more keenly aware of the fact that we're sinners. We become more conscious of the fact that we have to continually repent daily 
going back and asking our God to forgive us on the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So that's, it's hope is one of the key words in here. He's going to refer to it several times. In verse 20, he says that creation was subjected to frustration in hope. At the very end of that section I read, remember he has several statements in verses 24 and 25 about hope. So Paul associates hope with both the condition of creation and the believer. It would not be hope if we already possessed it, but since this hope is something that God has promised us, we can persevere in waiting eagerly for it. That all seems pretty clear, but then when we flip the page and we, we try to think about, well, what does Paul mean by this phrase, in this hope we were saved, all right? So we kind of know he's, he must be talking about our future hope of glory, right? That all makes sense. But what does he mean by, in this hope, we were saved? That's kind of a strange expression. There's a couple different ways that uh, Christians have answered this. It could be, I say, that he's using hope as something of a synonym with faith. Okay? In other words, it's, it's by hope or through hope that we're saved in some kind of instrumental sense. That's possible. That would make sense theologically, but that would be an odd way for him to say it. There's, I can't think of anywhere else in the Bible that one of the, the biblical writers talks that way. So most English versions assume that it refers to the manner in which we were saved. That is, our salvation is characterized by hope. So that'd be a second way. But I think there's possibly a third option, right? And the third options are always the correct ones, right, in these notes. So... Alternatively, but similar to the previous option, Paul could be referring to the context in which we are saved. So we're saved in hope. So remember, Paul likes this idea of circles, spheres, places where we are. And he's saying when you and I were saved, we were saved in the context of hope. Hope was kind of the air we breathed, if I can put it that way. Let me read a little bit of a quote here, and then I'll try to explain that. He says, Just as Abraham expressed his faith in the context of the hope that God would make him the father of many nations, even if that meant giving life to the dead. That was chapter 4, right? So those who believe the gospel express their hope within the context of hope for the resurrection of the dead, chapter 8, and deliverance from slavery to decay. So that's, that's Thielman's quote there. What's he trying to say? He's saying that our, our, our salvation, by definition, was trusting in a God who had made us promises. So one way to illustrate this is just think through Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer to, to the Hebrews illustrates genuine saving faith. And he goes through all those people who demonstrated faith in the Old Testament, all kinds of different situations some of these people look like genuine heroes. Some of the people there, you're kind of surprised they're on the list, right? But what they all have in common is that they had promises from God, things that they couldn't see, things that seemed to be not true, humanly speaking, but they took God at his word. They believed God. They hoped in God that what he was going to say, what, the, what he had said would come true. And that's the characteristic of a genuine believer. That's what genuine faith looks like. So I think that's what Thielman is referring to, that our salvation takes place in the context of hope. And I think that's likely what Paul means by, in this hope, we were saved. So then let's go to that last 
paragraph. So this would be verses 26 through 30. I broke this up into three points here on the slide. And I'm taking this from our, our recommended textbook, if you're reading along there. He said we could summarize this, this section in, with three Ps. So alliteration is always fun, right? It helps us remember. And so I put the three Ps up there in red. So first of all, we're encouraged. We have assurance because the Spirit prays for us. All right, so we'll have to talk about that. Second of all, we can be assured even in the midst of, suffer, of suffering because God is providentially working all things, including the suffering. So the suffering isn't an obstacle. The suffering is actually the means to the glory. That's an interesting thing to think about. And then third, we can have confidence because of God's predestination, which is the, the famous way that this section will close. All right. So let's, let's start walking through those then, starting in verse 26. So Paul says, in the same way, let me just read that for you. He says, in the same way, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Have you ever felt that? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So Paul is telling us this so that we would be assured of glory even in the midst of suffering. And so whatever this is that the Spirit is doing for us, it's supposed to be encouraging to us. It's supposed to give us assurance. But it does raise some questions. What does it mean here that the Spirit is groaning, right, with words? So in the NASB I have, it's groaning too deep for words, is the quote. In the NIV, it's wordless groans. So some people have suggested that this groaning receives or refers to some kind of uh, like the gift of tongues or some kind of spiritual language. There's a couple problems with that. First of all, it's not us that's groaning, it's the spirit, right? So and it's also specifically referred to as wordless groans, okay? And I think a third thing that helps us is to think about the context. This isn't the first time he's talked about groaning. He's already introduced that. And groaning, remember, was a metaphor for something that the creation does. So I think he's still using it in some kind of metaphorical sense. The Holy Spirit is our God, right? He's, he's one of the three persons of our Godhead. He doesn't suffer, right? He doesn't experience pain. He's separate from this creation. So when it talks about him groaning, it's a metaphor, but metaphors still represent real things, okay? It's speaking of his, his care for us, his urgency perhaps in prayer. So I think it's likely being used metaphorically here as he did earlier in verse 22. When we do not know what to pray, we can be assured that the Spirit is praying along with us and for us. The Father and the Spirit are in perfect harmony so we can be confident that the Spirit knows exactly what to ask of the Father. You see the logic that Paul's using there? You might not know what to pray, but there is someone who does know. Other places, we'll, we, we hear about the Son interceding for us, but here Paul says it's also the Spirit interceding for us. The Spirit prays, He intercedes to the Father, and because the Father, Son, and Spirit are one, there's going to be no disagreement among them. There's no chance that the Spirit's prayers will go unanswered. There's no chance that what the Spirit prays for will not be the Father's will. 
This is a concept that Paul also refers to in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. So just as an aside, you know, often we don't know what to pray for, right? That happens to most Christians. I know it happens to me. One of the ways we can remedy, remedy that is by the gift that we've been given in the New Testament of recorded prayers. So the Apostle Paul will often record for us exactly what he's been praying for. I especially like this one in Ephesians chapter 3, because as he'll say, he's praying this generally for people that he doesn't necessarily even know. So this isn't even tied to specific people or specific needs. Ephesians chapter 3 actually gives us a model for a prayer that you could pray for any Christian or all Christians all over the world. But when he gets to the very end of that prayer, after he's laid out his specific requests of what he's praying for, this is how he closes it. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work with us. So basically he's saying, I'm, I'm praying these specific things, but I'm acknowledging that God is able to do even more than what I asked for. Right? And I think that's a similar concept that he's referring to here in chapter 8. All right, let's stop for our break. 49. And uh, I'll, move, I'll move along fairly quickly, but feel free to stop me if you have a question. We're still, we're still on schedule in the notes, so there's no stuff that we have to get to. If you have a question, you can ask me. We're looking at the uh, second and third of those red bullet points. So first of all, it's the Spirit's prayers that assure us, but also it's, it's God's providence. So all of these things that could potentially discourage us and cause us to doubt God's love and whether we'll ever truly get to the end. Paul says God is actually in control of all of those things. And those things are actually means that God is using in our life to get us to where we want to go. That's a completely different way of looking at it, right? As instead of obstacles, they're actually tools or means that God is using. So this is how he puts it in... Uh, in verse 28, I'll read that. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. So picking up at the top of the page, it says, in addition to this promise concerning the Spirit, we have the promise that God providentially orchestrates all things so that they work for the good of those who love Him. I think all things here would have to include all of those things that cause us suffering, and they're all working towards a good goal. Paul doesn't come right out and say what good goal or what advantage he's specifically thinking of. Uh, it could include present good things, such as a stronger faith or a more certain hope. Those are a couple of the suggestions. In other words, the good might include our sanctification. So it could be talking about uh, benefits that we're actually gaining right now. I think that's all likely true, but however, ultimately, the focus of the context is on the good. That is our eschatological re resurrection and full realization of the benefits of being adopted 
children of God. So, yes, there are good benefits that are coming to us now. God is doing good things in our life. Becoming more like Jesus is good. No matter how God has to get us to that point, if we're going through trials and becoming more like Christ, that's a good thing. But ultimately, the good thing is to be in a new heaven and a new earth, to see Christ in His glory, and then to become like Him, to have our sins removed. So at the end of verse 28, Paul further describes those who love God as those who have been called according to His purpose. So this is the, the third one in red there, the predestination. He, he refers to them here, this description, uh, leads to a mention of the predestination of the believer, which serves as an additional encouragement for the believer as he waits for his final redemption. Paul lists a series of logical steps that end in the believer's glorification. Sometimes this has been referred to as the golden chain, this, these steps. At each point in the step, everyone who is the object of the verb is also the object of all of the other verbs. In other words, you can't be one of the justified people and not be all of the other ones. Or you can't be one of the called people and not also be all of the other ones. It's the same group of people all the way through. Nobody drops out. Nobody gets lost as God's plan unfolds. So let's just walk through the different steps. So first of all, God foreknew all believers. So sometimes people will object that God's foreknowledge is not him choosing or selecting people, but it's merely him looking into the future and knowing what people will do. And so based on his foresight of the future, he makes decisions. Well, the word can be used that way. So I explain there in the notes that, for example, in Acts 26.5 and 2 Peter 3, in some places, if the object of the verb is not a person, so if it's a thing that's being foreknown or if it's a fact that's being foreknown, then it can refer to foresight, as in you just looked into the future and you knew something was going to happen. I was on the way here, I was trying to think of an example of this in English where we have a verb that has different meanings based on its object. I mean, this is a corny illustration, but this is the best I came up with, right? So you could say, I, I kicked the ball, I kicked the habit, or I kicked the can, right? <laughs> all three of those have very different meanings. And we as English speakers, we know immediately all three of those. It's the exact same verb, kicked, right? But one of them is a motion that I do with my foot, right? One of them is like a disposition where I change something in my lifestyle. And one of them is, well, it's, it's dying, right? It's an idiom for dying. Same verb means three different things based on the object of the verb. Well, this verb does the same thing in the Greek language. If a person is the object, then it means you chose them. You, you set your love upon them. You knew them in an intimate, special way. If it's about a fact, something that's not a person, then it can just mean that you knew about it. See the difference? But it's very clear in the Bible that this type of language is used with the idea of choice. So this is just one passage that we could go to. This is the one that's in your notes there in parentheses. This is Amos chapter 3, verse 2. I'm going to cite here the ESV because the ESV uses the word known, which is a more literal translation. But it's usually translated as chosen even though in the Greek translation of this text, it'd be the same verb that Paul's using. 
So here, uh, God's speaking about Israel. He says, You only have I known of all of the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So this clearly has people as the object. And it doesn't mean that he just knew about them, right? Because that wouldn't make any sense in the context. Because then he would be saying, I just knew about you out of all of the families of the earth. And that's not true, is it? God knows about all of the people on the earth. But there's something special about the people of Israel. He, he chose them. He knew them. He had an intimate relationship where he fixed his love upon them. But in this context, that's actually bad news for them. Because that also means that he'll hold them accountable for how he's revealed himself to them. So they, because they were his chosen people, he also will punish them for their iniquities. Paul's using that same kind of language here. The New Testament writers do consistently when they use knowing language with a person as its object. It refers to God's choice of us. For example, another place you could go to would be 1 Peter 1.20. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world to be our Savior. So also those whom Christ will save were chosen before the creation of the world. Paul will say that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So first of all, we were chosen by, by God. He, he set his love upon us. As the apostle John will say, we love him because he first loved us, right? It was his move that was primary. Second, all of these chosen believers were predestined. So we were not only chosen, but God also chose our final goal. So he, he not only picked us and loved us, but he decided where we were headed. He picked a destination for us. That's what Paul's referring to here. This eternal home, the coming kingdom of the Messiah Jesus, was picked out for us before the world was even created. In that place, we will also have a predestined role. So he could be thinking not only of the chosen place, but also our chosen role. This, this idea, again, of having the ability to, to perfectly reflect the glory of God. Number three, all of those who were chosen and predestined were also called, right? So we, we didn't automatically just come to saving faith. Even though there's elect people, there's chosen people, those people still had to respond in faith and repentance. They still have this responsibility. Well, why do they exercise faith and repentance? What, what causes them to do that? And Paul's answer to that consistently in his letters is it's because God called them. It's an effectual call. It's a special call. I like to say it's a call with a hand. It reaches out and grabs us and actually pulls us to God. Here and in verse 28, this calling is the effectual call that results in people repenting of their sins and placing their trust in Christ. Fourth, all those who are effectually called are also justified. That's been a, a big emphasis in this letter. So justification just means they're declared righteous based on Christ's perfect obedience and sacrificial death. We can know that we are justified if we trust in Christ. So think about the, the chain. If the same people are in all of those categories, how do you know you're one of those people? Well, there's already been promises attached to justification. If we repent of our sins and put our trust in Christ, we are justified. So if any of us or any person that we're sharing the gospel with, if they turn from their sins and trust in Christ, they are justified. 
And then they can look back and also realize something that they never would have seen before, that now that they're justified, that also means that they were chosen, that they were predestined, and that they were, they were called. That's the one link in the chain that you and I can clearly see our responsibility and make sure that we've entered into it. Finally, everyone who has been justified will be glorified. Now, this is a little unusual because he doesn't actually say what would be the equivalent of will be glorified. He doesn't actually switch to the future tense. He uses a tense here, a a tense form, that would be more often associated with the past tense. That's why in our English translations, it's usually just translated as past tense. He also glorified. We have to be really careful. He doesn't use tenses the same way we use tenses because he's not writing in English, right? That's the catch. In English, tenses are all about like time. Like we even say that happened in the past tense and that's just our way of saying it already happened. Like it's a done deal, right? But in their language, tenses, time is there, but it's very small. It's not, it's not their main focus. So they do lots of different things with their tenses that don't have anything to do with time. So we can't just take our world and impose it on Paul's world. He could be doing several different things. He might just be emphasizing the fact that the believer's glorification is a certainty. Uh, I think that's probably the most common way it's interpreted. So you've, probably, you've heard preachers emphasize that, and it could be right. So it's like a done deal that will be glorified, and since so it's a done deal, he just speaks that as, as if it's done. He also could be referring to the fact that we are already starting to experience some of that glorification. So the final glorification that you and I will enjoy in Christ's presence, in some incomplete but very real sense, that's already started in our life because we are already gradually becoming more like Jesus Christ. And to the degree that we're like Jesus, we are actually bringing glory to God. And so the glorification process has already happened. It's, it's, at least in my mind, I'm not very sure of which of those two options is correct. But we just have to be careful that we don't put too much on his choice of a tense. All right. And then finally, this is how he concludes in verses 31 through 39. This is a great passage, so we just have to read it, right? So he wraps this all up. He says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting there from the psalmist. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. Just thinking about that initial question there, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There was a a Christian, John Chrysostom, uh, who, speaking of this verse, he, he puts it this way. I'll read this carefully and slowly because the, the translation in English is, is old, right? But I think we can get what he's saying. He says, why, it may be said, who is there that is not against us? You see what he's saying there? Like Paul says, there's, who's against us? And Chrysostom's saying, well, I feel like a lot of people are against us, right? There's all kinds of things against us. Why the world is against us, both kings and peoples, both relations, so relatives and countrymen, Yet these that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings, in that God's wisdom turneth their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. When I read that quote, it reminded me of what... uh, Peter will say in, in, the, in the book of Acts, right, that, that God, or that, I'm sorry, that our Lord Jesus was crucified based on the evil scheming of men, right, like Pilate and the rulers in Jerusalem, but it was also according to the foreknowledge and plan of God, right? He puts those two things side by side. The same idea that Chrysostom is referring to. Yes, that there's people out there that are against you, and they have all kinds of evil schemes, but over them is our God, who's in control of all of that. And actually, he's using their evil schemes towards good. So they're not actually against us. He says, even against their own will and without their knowledge, they're actually working for us because our God is behind the scenes. I thought that was a great quote. So let's go through those last two bullet points there on page 15. No one will make an accusation stick against us at the final judgment. I think that's Paul's point here in a couple of these verses. On our side at the judgment will be God who gave his son for us. That's verse 32. Why would he give his son for us and then decide to condemn us? He has already declared us not guilty, so we need not fear someone else making an accusation. Christ, who will be our judge, is the one who died for us. And he's interceding for us as a priest king at the Father's right hand. So Paul refers there in verse 34 to his intercession, and that's a promise from Psalm 110. Furthermore, we can't be separated from Christ's love for us. We experience the same kind of suffering experienced by the psalmist in Psalm 44. But all things that might seem to be capable of separating us from Christ's love are included under the all things that God is orchestrating for our good. In verse 39, Paul switches to speaking of God's love for us, creating a parallel with Christ's love for us in verse 35. Believers will never go unloved by either. So it's all very Trinitarian, and it's also if one person of the Trinity is doing it, the other two are also doing it. So if God loves us, then Christ also loves us. This status is secure because God loves us in Christ Jesus our Lord. He doesn't love us because for our own sake, right? The, his, his love is not based on who we are or what we have done. It's secure. It's a, it's a love that will never go away 
because it's a love that's based on his, his attitudes, his disposition towards his son, right? See how that makes all the difference? Here Paul returns one last time to a theme that has dominated chapters 5 through 8. We are receiving all of these great benefits, not on our merit, but because we are reunited to our King Jesus. So this was the two bookends to this passage, this big section. So way back in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he concludes it with saying, I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's his way of bookending this section and, and wrapping it up. Any questions there on that section? That covers everything, doesn't it, that list? There's, there's nothing excluded. He even includes the demonic realm, right? Uh, one of my colleagues at the seminary wrote a great blog post on, uh, on Halloween yesterday. So if you read our seminary's blog post, I'll just, it's just a shameless plug for our, our blog there. You can be one of you know, a, few, a few group, a select group of people that reads that. Anyway, he did an excellent job, some thoughts on Halloween. One of, the, one of his points, though, was this world isn't just stuff. And he was he cites another author that he got that frame for. This world isn't just stuff. You know, we tend to be very materialistic, right? We only believe in things that we can see and touch. One of the th things that we should be reminded of, especially at this time of year, is that there is another world out there, another realm, another dimension, and our neighbors are actually very interested and curious in it. And the solution isn't to deny it, and it's also not to dabble in it, right? The solution is the mid, in the middle to see that spiritual realm is also part of the creation that God made. And so it's actually also underneath his rule. We tend to not usually get too shook up about what the spiritual world is doing, but Paul's readers, it would have been a big deal to them, right? They were very keenly aware of the fact that they were in a spiritual battle. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, right? That we don't actually wrestle against flesh and blood but against these principalities and rulers in, in darkness. But they can't separate us from Christ's love. Any questions there? If not, we can jump into the next section. So we go ready for the next big section. This would be Romans 9 through 11. Nothing too controversial there. So I'll let you read those three big bullet points on page 51 on your own. So I was just copying and pasting some large quotations out of Moo's big commentary in Romans. The, the gist of it, the short version, version, is that when we start talking about God's plans and dealings with Israel in verses 9 through 11, it's not a detour or some kind of sidetrack to Paul's argument. It's very closely connected to what he's doing. I think at least two ways. One way we've talked about earlier is that, remember, he's addressing an issue in the church where there's a conflict between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So I think it has some implications. But I think maybe the, the bigger deal is, is that he's over and over again in chapters 1 through 8, 
emphasize that we need to trust in God, that God is a promise-keeping God, that God is faithful, that we can have hope in God, that we can have assurance of actually reaching glory. Well, one of the common objections might have been, well, well, doesn't God's dealings with the people of Israel, the fact that so many of them are, are unbelievers, right, that so many of them are opponents of the gospel, doesn't that actually call into question God's faithfulness? And specifically, if you'd been a very careful Old Testament reader, you would have expected that God was going to make the people of Israel whole again, that he was going to restore them, right? And they're still underneath the domination of the Roman emperor. Currently, it's Nero. And Paul and his readers, they might not realize it's at this point, but the clock is ticking. They only have about 10 years, roughly, until the Jewish war ends and the temple's destruction and a worse exile and in time of suffering for the Jewish people. So with all of that in mind, you know, what are the implications for the gospel if, if the people of Israel are in this current state? That's the type of question that chapter 9 through 11 are asking. So his main thesis statement that we're going to work towards actually comes in verse 6. So I think the beginning of verse 6 is his big idea for all three chapters. And his thesis is that the word of God has not failed. God, God keeps his promises. If God says that something's going to happen, it happens. And his first way of addressing that is going to be to say that God never intended to save every Israelite. Okay, So that's what we're working towards. But before we get there, let's just talk about the opening introduction that occurs in verses 1 through 5. So I'm reading there from the bottom of page 51. In this opening paragraph, Paul introduces the problem. Many Jewish people, he calls them the people of Israel, whom Paul deeply loves, remember they're his fellow countrymen, they've rejected Christ and they find themselves cursed, cut off from Christ. Just think about how strong of language that is, right? All of those previous chapters that we've been studying really hammer home the necessity of being united with Christ being attached to Christ, but he sees his countrymen as cut off from Christ, which leads to a very serious consequence. This is a condition that Paul says he wishes he could actually take their place, that he could be accursed for them. So from the outset, it's essential to notice that Paul is grieved by the lostness of individuals in Israel, and he's not merely concerned with Israel as a national entity. So what he says has implications for the whole nation but he's not thinking in political terms. He's thinking of their salvation, right? He's thinking of all of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, his fellow countrymen, who aren't united to Jesus the same way he is, right? Because countries don't get united to Jesus, right? Individuals do. This is about the salvation of individuals. So point two, this lostness calls into question whether all of the privileges given to Israel which Paul lists there in verses 4 through 5. So in verses 4 through 5, he goes through a whole list of all of their benefits. He talks about the covenants, the law, the temple worship, the promises. But this calls into question whether all of those things listed even have value. Specifically, he ends with the promises, which would include the promise of restoration and a new covenant to replace the Mosaic covenant, which they have broken. So if you're not real familiar with the New Covenant, 
The key passage to read would be Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, that's where Jeremiah, he's looking ahead to the exile that's coming. Babylon is about ready to destroy Jerusalem and, and carry off a bunch of exiles. The northern kingdom has already gone into exile over 100 years earlier. Uh, Jeremiah in that passage, he, he speaks metaphorically of the women of Israel as Rachel weeping for her children who are about ready to go into exile. And then the promise is that you can stop weeping because they, those children will come back. That someday the people who went into exile, that same nation, will be restored and come back. They broke the original covenant, the Mosaic covenant, but God will enter into a new covenant with them. So this, these are the types of promises that are all through the Old Testament. But these are also the types of promises that, if you weren't being careful, could potentially bring God's faithfulness into question. So that's at least one of the promises I think he's thinking of is the, Mos or the new covenant. But flipping a page, but of course, the greatest of these promises was the promised Messiah who belonged to the Israelite nation according to the flesh. So that's just another a literal way of translating the NASB. In the NIV, it's, it fleshes it out, makes it clear for us, no pun intended, the human ancestry of Christ. So Paul's explicit reference to the Son's deity prepares the reader for the discussion in Romans 10, 12 through 13, and illustrates the tragic and evil nature of his rejection by so many. So I'm referring here to verse 5, so I probably should read that. Paul says there in verse 5, Theirs are the patriarch, patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, Forever praised, amen. So this is one of the places in the New Testament where Jesus, the Son, is clearly referred to as our God. Of course, because it's so clear, it's also debated. There's, so there's going to be people who try to argue that that's not what Paul's saying here grammatically. But I don't think their arguments are convincing. I think that Paul's actually here referring to the Messiah, Jesus, as our God. Um, there's... That's not all there is to say about God, right? So we always have to be careful when we talk about our God because our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So we can't just put an equal sign between the Son and God. But you can speak of the Son as our God. And that's what Paul does here, which then that means that it's been a tragic mistake on behalf of his countrymen to reject Jesus because he is their God. And of course... He used to be one of those rejectors himself, right? So there's still hope out there for people like him. All right. Uh, Paul likely is aware of an objection that might be forming in the mind of his Gentile readers. So how can I be assured of my own final glorification if God has failed to keep his promises to the people of Israel? So then he gets into his argument there in verse 6. So... He answers this objection. The objection is, in verse 6, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And my way of putting that simply is that God never intended to save every Israelite. Um, here, I think God's word refers to the promises made by God to the people of Israel. If one were to think that God is failing to keep his promises to Israel, the problem is with you. Your perception of the evidence or your interpretation of the promise, not with God. 
So in order to support this argument, he goes on to make this statement that not all Israel is Israel. So within the larger group of people descended from Jacob, he says who are descended from Israel, he's referring to Jacob, are people who do not belong to Israel. So he, he's using Israel at least, well, I think just three different ways. So there's Israel as in the person. Remember, that's the name that God gave to Jacob. And then Israel was also used for all of his descendants, the nation. But now he also refers to people who are not of Israel, but are Israel at the same time, right? It becomes kind of confusing. We'll put it up here as a chart. So there's basically two different ways that this has been thought of. First of all, there could be physical Israelites, and then there could be a spiritual church that's predominantly made up of Gentiles, with the two just overlapping in the middle, right? So some physical Israelites are also part of spiritual Israel, but most of spiritual Israel is made up of Gentiles, right? If that was true, then Paul would be using Israel in a very unusual sense, because he's using Israel then to speak of a body of people that's mostly made up of Gentiles. So I think it's more likely that it's this second option. So I'll just kind of throw it out there now, and then we'll put it to the test as we work through the rest of the passage. But I th And this is a pretty common view, but he's actually thinking of all physical Israelites, and he's saying there's a subset within them that are the true Israel, the saved Israelites, the spiritual Israel. So all of spiritual Israel is physical Israelites, but not all physical Israelites are spiritual Israel, is I think what he means here when he says this. So let me just read it for you. In verse 6, he says, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. Right? So there's some people who are descendants of Jacob, but they're not going to receive the promises made to Abraham. So you remember that passage that I put up on the screen earlier from Galatians that said that if we're included in Christ, that we're also Abraham's descendants. Do you remember that passage, uh, Galatians chapter 3? Well, here Paul's saying a startling thing, right? He's saying there's some people who are physically descendants of Abraham, and more specifically, they were physical descendants of Jacob, but they won't actually be the Israelites who received the promise that was made to Abraham. So within Israel, there's going to be a distinction. So this all goes back to this point that, not, that God never intended to save every Israelites. So he goes to give two examples. This is that next to last bullet point. His first example comes in verses 7 through 9. He gives the example of Isaac, who was chosen by God over Ishmael. And then by quoting from Genesis 21 in verse 12 and verse 7, Paul clarifies that the contrast is between Ishmael, who was born first, and Isaac, who was chosen to continue the line of promise. So it was Isaac, not Ishmael, that was the fulfillment of what was promised in Genesis chapter 18. So he, he and we'll continue this next week, but his very first example is that God has always made choices within the biological family. That having a physical connection to Abraham was not enough. And exhibit A is the two boys, Ishmael and Isaac, because they both had a biological connection. 
And humanly speaking, you'd think Ishmael would be the chosen one because he not only had the biological connection, but he was also the older child. But God, as he frequently does all through the Old Testament, I think to teach us a lesson, he chooses the unlikely child, the weaker child. He chooses the, the woman who can't have children. He chooses Gideon with the smaller army. Right? This is a common theme all through the Old Testament that God takes weak things or unlikely things so that his power is magnified. And so God's choice of people within Abraham's larger family was illustrated from the very get-go when he chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. All right, so we'll have to leave it there. And we'll come back with the rest of his argument, uh, Lord willing, next week. We'll see you later.